Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in Season 10. Our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my god, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Conan the Barbarian is over. It's time to crush our enemies and see them driven before us and hear the lamentation of our women. Slave. 
barbarian. Warrior. Thief. Conan. They said you'd come. A man of great strength. Conqueror. One who could crush the snakes of the earth. of their own deaths. He's evil, a sorcerer who can summon demons. Day of Doom is here! What daring! What arrogance! I salute you. the most incredible adventurer of all. The man they call Conan. The Barbarian. Coming to a theater near you from Universal Pictures. Andy, I logged We Can Be Heroes to my Letterboxd account. Letterboxd.com slash, uh, I don't know, Pete Wright, I think. I, I think that poor... Uh, <laughs> Poor Robert Rodriguez is just, it does not live up to the standard set by Spy Kids that just cherished family adventure hooliganry that we love and laugh at. And now I'm left with We Can Be Heroes, and it was not the same spirit. It was confusing and, and horrible. But I will tell you this I may not like the movie, but I will fight and die for your right to log it at letterbox.com. Oh. I know. Do you see what I did there? Yeah, you're like the Conan of Letterboxd. I'm the Conan of Letterboxd. Uh, what, what's the deal with Letterboxd? Why do we? Why am I so excited about Letterboxd, Andy? Letterboxd is a fantastic site for movie lovers, for people who love to log what they watch and just kind of keep track of it, for people who like to review the movies that they watch and kind of write down their notes, whether it's for themselves or for other people, uh, whether they like to, um, you know, see what other people think of movies and comment and talk to each other about these other movies and build lists. It's a, it's a great place for film fans worldwide and to just kind of get into conversations and uh, talk about movies. And Letterboxd provides uh, anyone who's listening to The Next Reel an opportunity to get a discount for Letterboxd membership. They have several, they have a free platform, but you can also upgrade to Pro or the patron level, and every level offers you more benefits. And with the discount for the next reel, you get 20% off when you sign up. And that's even if you renew. You just go to thenextreel.com slash letterboxed to get that discount. And so you're not, if, if it's confusing, it's thenextreel.com slash letterboxed with no trailing E, B-O-X-D. That's yes. how they spell it. If you've never, if you've been curious, if you've listened to the show for a while and you've wondered what is up with Letterboxd, what is, what do they keep talking about? This is what we keep talking about. And you should check it out. If you love movies and you love lists, it's <laughs> just the only place to go is uh, Letterboxd, the next com slash Letterboxd. Sign up or renew today. Andy, we're, this is the second movie in our Oliver Stone, uh, the Oliver Stone origin story uh, series that we're doing. 
It is, yes. Yeah, the making the making of a mercurial movie magician, Oliver Stone. And it's Conan the Barbarian. Finding his footing in his uh, film career. That's it right. sure was. This was a controversial uh, piece for him. Uh, he, he didn't direct it. Uh, he wrote it. And what we see on the screen is is some of what's left. <laughs> is that a fair way to characterize it? It's it's hard to say how much of it is actually his. It's funny that this is in our series. I mean, he was involved in it for quite a while. He was very deeply uh, into this uh, this story. Edward R. Pressman had uh, bought the rights to this. It was a very uh, complicated process that went on for several years trying to secure the rights to the story because he and uh, somebody else thought it would be a really interesting. Uh, story to tell the whole idea of Conan. And of course, uh, he uh, brought, uh, they wanted a name writer to come on board to write this script. And Oliver Stone was just coming off of winning an Oscar for Midnight Express. And so he came on board. Now, according to uh, him and everyone at the time, he was going through as they say, a period of addiction to cocaine and depressants. And his script was written under the influence of the drugs. And the result of what uh, John Milius, who ended up directing this film, called a total drug fever dream, albeit an inspired one. So we'll we'll probably talk about that a little bit more here. But needless to say, uh, Milius did come in once he was on as a director and uh, and thinned things down quite a bit. And I shouldn't say just because of what the script was, but also because of what the budget for that script would have been. They estimated that the budget for the script that Stone wrote was probably at least double what they ended up spending on it. So a very, very expensive and uh very big film and and you know Oliver Stone actually said you know this film really kind of set up a trilogy you know we have this there's Conan the Destroyer and they'd planned on Conan the Conqueror as a third film but Oliver Stone himself says that he wrote this with visions of this being one of 12 Wow. <laughs> he, he wanted this to be the next big James Bond type of film and that every couple years Arnold Schwarzenegger would come back and uh, play this character again in yet another adventure of Conan on his journey through um, whatever his country is called, Hyperia. Yeah, yeah. I think this, I think this, he was, you know, about 30 years too early for that. I think if they, if, if there's, it's just, we, I think we live in an era now where the media appetite for those big series at studios is higher. And yeah. uh, I, I wonder if, you know, given 30, 35 years, they would have been able to, that same team even, you know, just move them in time would have been able to do something. It does make me curious about other Conan properties, because I don't feel like at any point we can say confidently that Conan has, quote, taken off on the big screen. Is that fair? I think it's interesting to see the evolution of fantasy. I always grew up reading fantasy novels. That was my uh, novel of choice, was reading fantasy. I just loved it. I, I loved science fiction, too, but just I really just got into fantasy. But I there were levels of fantasy, like what... 
uh, J.R.R. Tolkien was creating with his worlds. And then I think you had artists like kind of the Conan, Boris Vallejo, that really was like this, uh, you know, Frank Franzetta, who was, uh, he did a lot of the art kind of that they inspired the direction for this, that had this fantasy story type that was, uh, it almost had an erotica element to it. Like people were clad, they were muscular people, they were clad mm-hmm. in very tight outfits that were very revealing and i that that also was a big fantasy element that was very very popular and i i feel like there are elements and, and then there's also the fantasy that i think because of the fantastical elements they felt it had to also have kind of uh, a, a silliness to it and so i think that there was an, an interesting balance of trying to find the right types of fantasy i was never in the stuff that wasn't just a more serious sort of fantasy and that's why i feel like perhaps it's easier for people to latch on to something like lord of the rings that just feels like you know like real stories that are just in this fantastic world as opposed to something where everyone is also running around in uh you know uh, swimwear swimwear i see what you did there they they were naked a lot of them were just naked andy so we'll we'll get to the slave orgy in a second i think it's uh i i think that's interesting i was an earthsea guy like i was big into ursula k Le Guin, and that's and that just led straight into lord of the rings for me and so i was i was on that side so i never really connected with conan either um and and i always thought of it as fantastical kind of uh uh, poster artwork and the sword to the sky and the muscle bound and the all that you know sexy stuff. I I can't, I think when I was a little kid, I attributed it to you know people who listen to punk rock music or hard rock metal like metal music because those that it's there's sort of some similarities <laughs> across uh, across cultural appeal and I never really liked the music so I never understood it at the time and so why would i like the the these properties that had that celebrated the stuff so i was very confused by this kind of fantasy uh when i was very young yeah and when conan came out it just it, it was not my it, it was not a part of my cultural sort of touchstones collection of touchstones and so i just missed it and didn't see it until much later so didn't know a lot about it and i think also again this was made with a little more of that erotic sensibilities yeah so i think to that end it was not made for the family so it wasn't something our parents were taking us to and i would argue or i don't even know if it's an argument but i would just say neither of our parents uh, were probably the sort of people that were into this sort of property and wanted to take us to this type of film. At least yeah, I know it's not something words. where dad saw the trailer and was like, oh, God, we got to go see Conan. Yeah, certainly was not. I don't know in hindsight if that would if if that would change, if I'm the dad that would see the, the Conan. I mean, when did the reboot come out? Was that 11, 2011? 2011, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't that dad then. My kids were much, much younger, but... Uh, well, it I, also wasn't a good movie, Pete. <laughs> I never saw it. Did you see it? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll tell you about that as we get oh, toward the end of our conversation here, if there's time. The real question for me about this experience, though, all that is leading up to how much Oliver Stone 
is in here, right? How much does this movie showcase the the big themes that are sort of super internal to Stone that he makes movies about, right? What does he take away from this experience that shows up in in his other movies? And I think there are a few points in in here that are are probably worth talking about out, uh, about how power and masculinity and and uh, these sorts of of cultural tropes are woven into Conan by Oliver Stone, who then goes off and makes Wall Street, which is essentially Conan <laughs> in suits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because obviously John Milius is very much that sort of person too, right? I mean, yeah. his career is full of very masculine sorts of stories. Like, I mean, Red Dawn, uh, you know, yeah. he he worked on, you know, Apocalypse Now, the uh, Dirty Harry, uh, Dillinger, you know, the A-Team. Like, he, he is involved in a lot of these stories that deal with uh with people who are you know just a very masculine type of person and you know not always he's not always doing those sorts of stories but i think it fits that he ended up being the person that came on so i think a lot of that also likely was pulled from him and what he was doing but i think to that end that's kind of why he and stone their sensibilities in telling a story like this made sense and how he was able to take what Stone had done, this four-hour epic. I mean, this is what I, I read about Stone's version, in which the hero champions the defense of a princess's kingdom. Instead of taking place in the distant past, Stone's story was set in a post-apocalyptic future where Conan leads an army in a massive battle against a horde of 10,000 mutants. Very different movie. Yeah. But a lot of the different scenes and elements within this story more of the stuff toward the beginning of the film um uh, like when conan is is crucified on the tree when like the whole bit with the tower of serpents the the raid on on his village as a child all of that stuff was stuff that stone had pulled from the stories and written and adapted into this script and so there still is a lot about this child growing up and and becoming this this warrior that stone pulled and obviously he was drawn to the material i mean he's very very passionate about it and i think that's why even with milius changing so much of the script and adapting it i think you're right you're still seeing a lot of ideas of this masculinity that stone was drawn to in the conan source material and that he adapted and helped create this the cinematic world here. Yeah, right. Uh, I, I think this whole idea of, you know, trust the sword, men let you down, right? Trust mm -hmm. the sword, trust the, the trappings of power, uh, the tools of power, because humanity will fail you uh, uh, all the time. And, and so part of the arc of, of Conan is trying to to resolve himself that there are people there there are humans that that are can be trusted uh, above and beyond the power that comes with the trappings of war and fighting that's a theme that we that come come up against with oliver stone all the time i i think uh, just just following on that i think that whole riddle of still steel is exactly that right the whole yeah. idea that there's this riddle of steel that his dad talks about to young conan and how this is this powerful tool that you have, but as as Tulsa Doom later says, it's the it's the man wielding it that is really the one who you should fear. It's not the it's not the sword itself. It's the man, yeah, and that right. absolutely is something that 
that does speak to stone. It's, you know, it's the the man is the power, regardless of what weapon he's carrying. Another one, the, the value of that man as the conqueror, to your point, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's a that's a, a celebration at the end as as you know it, it becomes easy to dissolve the the that that sweet hot snake energy at the death of Thulsa Doom because the, of of the value of the man who wields the 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 steel and I think that's a that's an, an interesting way to weave these themes into a movie like this that uh, you know where we I, I think that allow Stone to tell stories that are are particular to his nature uh, in a way that uh, makes it seem pretty easy. So in that regard, I think I, I think it ends up thematically interesting, even if I have quibbles with the movie itself. <laughs> it, you know, I actually uh, I find it to be quite an enjoyable film. I mean, it's it. There are issues that I certainly have with it. It's not like the greatest film, but. I really appreciate what they were doing here. And despite that kind of that uh, more going down the uh, Frank Vazetta uh, Vallejo style of uh, warriors that I I think this was largely the complaint that people raised when Wonder Woman was being made and how there was so much praise for what Patty Jenkins did in that, you know, you don't always have to have the women superheroes running around in skin tight uh, revealing outfits, you know, and that's, I think, why Wonder Woman was a success. And that's why I think there was such this this comic book mentality with some of these things and and that early fantasy that was just too revealing. It's like, why are people running around fighting in these sorts of clothes, you know, whether next to nothing men and women like it's just it's nonsense and while that is in this film i certainly appreciate that what they're doing is really working to create an interesting world like they are actually doing not as good a job but essentially what peter jackson was doing uh, several decades later with the lord of the rings films where they're trying to create and i feel like they actually do create this epic sense of this world like i feel like there's a lot going on in this particular land that they're in and you know watching this film i'm like wow i really wish that conan the destroyer had been better and that they had really been able to find the direction for this. Because I think that they were on an interesting track to make something, you know, pretty unique with it at the time. Mm-hmm. Even if it's, even if it, uh, there's a lot of stuff in it that I feel is just a little, uh, you know, kind of, it falls by the wayside. Let's talk about, uh, let's talk about Conan then. The slave boy turned conqueror. Mm, yes, yes. Young Conan watching his uh, his parents. He's uh, Sumerian, and uh, you know, I just, I you know, there's a lot of people in this land. <laughs> I'm not sure so many people how the they land. all relate, but anyway, he is Sumerian, and apparently they have they don't cry, they don't express their emotions, according to um, according to his buddy that uh, um, Subutai, who cries for him later. I, I will say the scene when Thulsa Doom and his band of raiders raids Conan's village, I found that to be effective. And I especially found the scene with, like, after everyone's killed, it's just Conan and his mother and apparently a bunch of other children that we don't see at that particular point. But they kill the mother. And the way that Doom does that, I find really compelling because I think that speaks to this hypnotic 
nature that this villain has. I I really liked it. I, I, I sense that you might have some issues with how it all played out. I just was confused by a lot of it, and I was so struck by his long, dark locks mm-hmm. on James Earl Jones uh, that uh, maybe I and was... And those piercing blue eyes, too. Yeah, maybe I, it's possible I was hypnotized uh, <laughs> by the, the entire thing. I, I thought it was a little bit confusing, and I don't think they did a, a a great job early on of setting the stage of who the people were, because I thought the the you know, the guys who were doing the fighting and then James Earl Jones comes up and he's he like a, a Merlin character. I didn't recognize that he was the head for the longest time. And so I, I just think it was, you know, early stuff in the movie that maybe you're not supposed to understand. I found that sequence. I didn't I, I didn't get uh, I didn't understand what the what he was trying to accomplish. Was he trying to turn her somehow? Was he trying to bring her into the Legion? And then he beheads her, and it makes for a, a nice and shocking moment. I, I get that in, in hindsight. that His hypnotic power of, of snake charming her was lost on me until much later. Like, mm. to the point where you actually had to tell me, no, he was hypnotizing her. I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> yeah, so that's how, how long I had to wait to understand that. I uh, really found it to be incredibly effective. I, I just loved the way that he has this look that basically kind of weaves its spell upon her and she lowers her sword. And then the beheading, the way that that's filmed where you're focusing on young Conan and you can just see him and he's holding his mother's hand and you see her body and as Thulsa Doom spins around to behead her, you cut to that shot of the boy and you just see mom's head drop through the frame and then her body topple out and he's just left looking at his now empty hand. I was just like, wow, that was a really powerful way to construct that particular moment in the film. I thought that was really interesting, too, because the way that was framed from his perspective, as we cut to that reverse shot from him and you look at he's looking at his hand and there's a sword right above it as if the sword is going to somehow fall into his hand. It's quite a prophetic mm-hmm. bit of, of cinematography there. I thought that was that was great. Yeah. And then he then he becomes a slave. Yeah. Yeah. Then he yeah. becomes a slave. Now, here's the thing. My understanding is that as we've sort of discussed, this Conan is a different Conan, and the Conan in the Howard books uh, was more educated and more suave, and uh, this one is, is and, and would never have put up with this, this whole slave-making bit, this slave-making nonsense, and getting on the wheel. Maybe not, maybe as a kid, but certainly by the time he's an adult and, you know, as a pit fighter and stuff, they, he might have uh, fought right. that. Yeah, because the, the quotes that I found about the original stories says, the Conan in the books detests restrictions to his freedom and would have resisted slavery in a violent fashion, whereas the film version accepts his fate and has to be freed. And then Robert Garcia's review of the film in his American Fantasy magazine states that this Conan is less powerful, less talkative, and less educated than Howard's. Yeah. So I think that speaks a little bit to this. And, you know, perhaps some of that came in from the way that it was written by these uh, these two people writing the script. And perhaps some of that also was working with Arnold Schwarzenegger in a role that for him was largely a big breakout opportunity for him, but also really was hard for him because his accent was still so thick and and he had to work on it quite a bit even just to get what we're getting in the film which is still pretty thick. Well, is that is that part of the reason so in the earlier drafts of the film the narrator 
it was actually Conan who was doing a lot of his narration. If you read the the script that's linked is the third draft Milius script and, uh, and all of the, the stuff from the narrator after the early bit is, is actually Conan talking about his own sort of, you know, origin story. And, uh, I find that's interesting that all of that had been switched to the narrator wizard, the Mako character. And the bit of him sitting on the throne that we get at the very end, which I think is fantastic. And that was at the beginning and you hear him with his narration at the beginning. And that was, it was, it was just a little too much. They, they, my impression was that it was too much, the accent. And so they moved it to the end and had Mako do all the narration instead. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And I wonder if that would have made like, what's your sense? Do you think it would have been if if they'd had a character that they could maybe had a, a little bit more mature facility if they'd had with English, right? Um, and, and not the heavy accent. Do you think they it would have made for a better Conan? Well, originally, they were talking about Charles Bronson, Sylvester Stallone, William Smith. Yeah. Actors in the 70s who had played, you know, tough guys. Until they saw Schwarzenegger in an early rough cut of Pumping Iron and said, oh, he's perfect. Look at him. He looks like Conan. Uh, but then it's, it's just then they had, did have to deal with the accent. So I feel like that had to come into play a little bit. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, I, I wonder. And, you know, even uh, a slightly later Conan, again, th- this movie being ahead of its time, uh, a slightly later Schwarzenegger, I think you know would have would have made for a very different conan give him another five or ten years and and he sounded like a different guy i i wonder how that would work and you know i mean they're they're still constantly talking about and doing another conan property uh yeah. with him and uh, you know it makes me wonder i think by this point people just even with his accent people still you know i i think people are so used to him because he had been around for such a period of time that i don't think it's as much a concern anymore even it you know even if his accent's a little little lighter he's a different performer now right i mean he's just a, like i i find his post governor roles to be even more interesting than you know his pre-politics roles hmm. uh i've i found him to be uh really compelling in um uh what was the there where there was the um that zombie one he did um that was so good. Uh, was it Maggie? Yeah, I think uh, so. Yeah, that was just really, I, I really enjoyed my time with that movie. And uh, it, it showed a, a whole different side of Schwarzenegger, the actor. And and I, I think I, I may have been lonely in my appreciation of that movie. I don't think it did well. <laughs> um, but but I, I honestly think, think that that energy, that Arnold Schwarzenegger energy and that Arnold Schwarzenegger performance would make a great post kingdom Conan the King, right? I mean that he would I think he could pull that off. I feel like like this is this is this would be a great time to catch up with him. Apparently it's been announced. You know, it's one of those things where they've been talking about making the legend of Conan for uh for yeah. you know uh, I mean pretty much since uh, and and it's still something that's in the works. It's it's even on IMDb listed as announced. So who knows? As announced, yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I would take it. I like him. I think he. Do, I think he does a great job in the character. And I, I think that I don't know. He's he's just fun, and he ends up working well. Uh, and it's funny because that was something in this film where the three leads, uh, Conan, Valeria, and uh, Subutai, are all 
essentially beginners like yes. uh, you know Jer- Jerry Lopez who plays Subutai he was just uh, uh John Milius's surfing buddy who had been in his film uh, Big Wednesday beforehand and Milius thought that he would be perfect as Subutai so brought him in and Valeria uh, Sandal Bergman, she had been in uh, All That Jazz, which we've talked about on the show, as one of the dancers. And mm-hmm. and he had seen her and, and Bob Fosse said she, you know, she would be able to move like, like, you know, a warrior. And that's why they brought her on. So essentially three beginners helming this big, big studio film. And it's it's pretty interesting. And and that's, I guess, why they brought in James Earl Jones and Max von uh, Sydow as two people who had more experience to kind of help bring these ones up a little bit. And Mako, too. Yeah. I love that, that that she goes on to from here and makes uh, Red Sonia and she uh, just a few years later. And, and all of them have exactly that same vibe. Clearly, um, you know, she's I think she was great and she had a real sort of stamina for this kind of movie right well and i think some of that is it's a stamina and then i think also it's um uh, getting pigeonholed (laughs) yeah yeah, we can call it that (laughs) a little bit of both a little bit of both yeah (laughs) yeah all right um we, we didn't finish our conversation about the slave transformation because that sequence on the wheel is um you know, it's a wheel and it just goes around. And the whole time I kept thinking, like, as we were watching him with these successive cuts to age him on the wheel, as if he's been doing this for, you know, 20 years, he gets stronger and stronger. And I kept wondering what muscles would actually develop if there was somebody on the wheel and they were doing this. Wouldn't they be horrifically lopsided? <laughs> Maybe we never see. Maybe periodically they stop everybody and, and have them turn, turn around, around and spin the other way. <laughs> I couldn't let that go. I could not let that go. Like I wanted to see a giant, like a uh, giant right side and a skinny left side. That's what I felt like needed to happen. It's an odd setup because my understanding of the wheel is it's purely to weed out the the kids to figure out who who's worth training to be a, a pit warrior basically and they basically have them walk around this thing as we see over time the the population working the wheel grows smaller and smaller until it's only conan as the one sole survivor of this wheel torture <laughs> thing because i was like well maybe they're making corn or something you know crushing crushing wheat i don't know what they're doing with it that's what i was hoping they're spinning it in circles forever what is the point but it i don't think there is a point other than to weed them out and to figure out who is going to be the one that they use as a as a pit fighter such a strange and and it takes years so like what's the what's the point of this strange thing but they call it the wheel of pain i i don't know I don't know if they're doing anything with it or not. It just seems very strange to me. Well, there is another thematic point, which is the futility of the futility of man, right? I mean, that's just anytime you put a wheel as a symbol, like this never-ending cycle of of not that leads to nothingness. It is a, it is a commentary on futility, and in this case, I mean, we're building this slave, this warrior that you know what is he what does he symbolize at this point in the movie he symbolizes nothing he sim- symbolizes the futility of his own cause until he's able to break those shackles and um and so i you know it's a it, it is an interesting symbol if a ridiculous exercise well and the whole thing is a little odd to me because he basically goes from that into being a pit fighter 
And he, it's there he seems to find his, as the film, the narration kind of describes, it's, it's his sense of purpose. Now, now he lives for it because he gets people cheering him on and he kind of thrives on that whole idea of being this successful fighter. But then all of a sudden it's like, his owner just decides to free him one day. And I was just like, what, why, why? Like what all of a sudden yeah. happened? Did I miss something? Like, do you, what was the reason for him getting no, freed? I, 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 okay. So it was, it was poorly explained. I thought maybe he had aged out of it or something. No, no idea. Especially because he had fit, right? He had fit into this model. Yeah. He was a fighter and all of the narration told us that he was, he developed a bloodlust and he just, he just beat up guys and killed them. And that's what his, his job was. And he was happy. Yeah. He right. had been brainwashed. And we have that great brainwashing bit, you know, where he's he's being tested and taught and, you know. And yet, then he demonstrates, I guess, a sense of, <laughs> a sense and sensibility toward women as they bring the concubine into his thing and everybody watches. Right. Uh, and then he, like, wraps a cloth around her and... Uh, and then I guess goes and has his way with her that we don't see off screen. But it, I, I found that uh, a puzzling contradiction in who Conan is. Well, and maybe that's part of the point is that this is this he's a barbarian, but he's not a Planet of the Apes style human where he's just going to have his way with a woman. He's going to make her feel not as embarrassed by being naked in front of all these other people and cover her up even while he still follows through with his, you know, the whole point of bringing her over to his bed to bed her. And so it was a little, it was a little, it was peculiar, but I, I, I was like, okay, this is an interesting way to depict him where he doesn't want to just, you know, throw her down and take her. He wants to make her more comfortable and then take her. And then throw her down and take her. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, he didn't throw her down. There was no, no he sets her gently and then, yeah. Uh, it, it's odd. It's an odd sense. And, and this is the story about this this person who doesn't find any benefit in in humans, really, other than to kill them or to to screw them. And, you know, he does finally befriend Subutai and eventually Valeria. And Valeria is really the human character of the story who falls for him and wants to run away with him. They wants to kind of have this life of just being happy together, even though he can't let this revenge bloodlust that he has go and has to follow through with taking down Thulsa Doom because of what he did to his uh, village and his uh, parents and to get the sword back. Although mm -hmm. it's it's a little unclear. It's like... Is it? I mean, he he finds the sword. He uses the sword, um, but I I wasn't sure. Like, it was it just to get the sword? I mean, maybe it's just it's a it's a fault of the script that Conan is so untalkative. We just aren't completely sure if the sword is really has anything to do with it, or if it's just his parents, or really why he's pursuing all of this. Well, because there were there were two swords, right, that we're dealing with. Thulsa Doom takes the his father's sword, right, which is called the Master Sword. But then he has the Atlantean sword that he gets in that little cave place. And the, this is this is a fundamental problem with 
with the fetish objects in this film. Because when you have a fetish object, when you have like the treasured object that that the main character is going to, you know, is is on his search for, that drives, that propels his search, right? As I thought was being set up to be the the king's sword, right? His dad's sword. Because yeah. we have that opening credits bit that that is so just lustfully chronicling how the sword is made. Yeah. It does not serve the story as well to distract the viewer from that search, right? And when he finds the Atlantean sword and takes possession of it, it becomes very much his sword. It is a showcase sword. It is, by all rights, more beautiful than the king's sword. It is, it's longer. It's like, it's his. It becomes part of his identity. And so I never, I, I never quite came to terms with, are we still looking to avenge his father and get that sword, the other sword? Uh, because that felt important in the beginning and it becomes inc- decreasingly important as we move on. And that was something I was trying to figure out because, you know, he does have that chat with Thulsa Doom the first time that he he comes and attacks and they actually talk about the riddle of steel this is right before he ends up getting crucified yes. uh, and and that I'm like okay so is this kind of his turn as he starts realizing that the sword doesn't mean as much because eventually and I'm pretty sure it's his dad's sword that he has that ends up breaking but because I think it was that other guy who had been holding it at that particular point in time yeah I agree and yeah, so it's it, so it's it's a little muddled as what we're trying to say here. But I was like, okay, maybe through all of that and the fact that Conan, you know, does end up using the Atlantean sword, it's not about the master's sword anymore is a sign that he's learned something, but it's just it's so unclear and while not a specific like problem with the film or anything like that, it's definitely something that I was left questioning. I'm like, well, what what was the reason for that? I, you know, I don't know. I'm glad that you thought that because I I found it a, a confusing choice, right? A confusing narrative choice. I don't know how you could explain that and not uh, somehow be jumping through logical flaming hoops to make it make sense for for the character motivation. Uh, so. I get that his journey is to ultimately to retrieve this. He's he's the equalizer, right? It's to retrieve this princess for her dad. <laughs> and, right. And uh, that's our, our ultimate journey, but also to figure out who he is, right? It's to take his, his place in the annals of history of Hyperia or wherever. Um, and I think it was kind of a confusing road to get there. And maybe that's a result of, of you know, script changes, but... It Maybe was, it was yeah. tough. It was tough. And, you know, it also it's one of those stories where it feels of its time. It feels very masculine. It's less concerned about the women in the story and their place in it as it does the men in the story yeah. and their place. Like Valeria, she is so in love with Conan that she can't let him die. And she even says, you know, I would I would die for him. I won't let him, you know, whatever that whatever needs to happen. Uh, you know, I will I will be. Uh, I will sacrifice myself if, it, if that's what it takes in order to get him back to life. And 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 Mako does that whole ceremony, and they have to stop all the weird ghost things that are fighting him or trying to steal him and stuff. And actually, I thought that was really effective. I liked that scene. I thought it was really yeah. cool. But then on the flip side, when she gets struck by the snake arrow, Conan doesn't act the same about her 
as to how she acted for him. And if they're this in love with each other, it's like he, she's willing to sacrifice herself for him, but he's not willing to sacrifice himself for her. In fact, she's willing to die and he's willing to accept her death. Yeah. And, and she even comes back after she's dead as a spirit to help him in that one particular moment. And it's just, it was such a, uh, one sided, way to to tell that particular story and that's something else with fantasy in that particular period is it felt much more for the guys than it did for the girls yeah i was i was wondering where you were going with that because um it it, like is that a critique of this film or a critique of the entire (laughs) like because it this it felt very natural to me because i never got the sense that conan dug her as much as she dug him at never once no but it's just it, but i think that speaks also to just how these men were telling this masculine fantasy story you know yes. they could never yep. have a man you know be willing to sacrifice himself for her right but it's okay right. to have her it, it's like such a uh you know the way that that system was structured back then. It's just like, I couldn't yeah. see Oliver Stone or John Milius, either of them, <laughs> writing this any other way, especially in the late 70s. That's a, yeah, that's a really good point. Of course. Yeah, of course we would land there. Yeah. The other, the other thing I think was interesting is um, the, the f- overarching story from the very beginning sets the, the stage that they live in a time of misinformation. Mm-hmm. Right. That this is this, and they use some of that language over and over again, that this is a guy that this Thulsa Doom lives in a tower and he is presenting misinformation to the people. And when we have a, a meeting with our barbarian Santa Claus King, uh, <laughs> the, the father played by um, Max von Sydow, Max von Sydow uh, we, we get a sense that he is saying, I'll give you anything to bring my daughter back. This guy He's a cultist and he has bamboozled her. She she believes these things that aren't true anymore. Like she's been taken in by this guy. And and that's that I, I found that interesting given the times in which we are living. Right. Yeah. Right. That that ultimately Conan the Barbarian is kind of a QAnon story, right? It's a fake news story. It's a it's you know conspiracy theorist conspiracy cultists. theory story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that is really interesting to me because they he used the same like talk about prophetic like using some of the same language around these people and trying to find a hero who is capable to see through it and not get hypnotized by it and to to cut it off at the very top. I, that's, that is an interesting thing to me about this story. I did not expect it. I didn't remember that for sure. It's, it's, it's a really interesting element, and I can really see how that was an element that I think that uh, Stone, certainly knowing how much the world of politics and conspiracy theories and all that would, would kind of fuel his, his stories later as we're as we'll start talking about some of them and some past the point where we're going to talk but he certainly continues evolving that study and knowing that they were reaching you know in the 70s when they're working there were plenty of these sorts of stories that they were able to pull from from the time about people getting brainwashed into these into these you know terrorist groups and and cult groups and and all of this 
And I, I think it felt very much of the time for them to be telling this particular story. And you're right. It's just, <laughs> it's a little off-putting how much it fits in today. Well, and, and that he was coming off of, you know, just our lived cultural experience of, of Watergate and, you know, all of these things as he's working through some of these stories. Like you can feel some of that political insidiousness seeping into, into this story. The yeah. other interesting thing in his script, uh, Conan does not become king at the end of the, of his story. Um, that he, he's offered, she offers her hand in marriage so that they can become so he can become king and he says i'm i'm not going to do it i'm not going to marry into power right i'm not going to marry into royalty i'm going to earn it and he leaves and rides off into the sunset and we don't have the the uh woe is be the king final shot yeah uh, which i think is is another really interesting and um such a trope that that i that stone grabbed onto right that heroic that mythic that larger than life uh honor is bigger than anything kind of um aesthetic i think is is i'm missing that i kind of wish i didn't know that now <laughs> yeah and and i can really see how they were very much convinced at the time both stone and milius this is going to be a trilogy. This is going to be one of 12. This is the setup for all that other stuff that is to yes, come. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Uh, and, and last, last point, and we can run through getting it done. But a last point is just the way they use that, that masculine energy. We made a, a joke about, you know, that sweet snake energy. But really, I mean, <laughs> that, that Thulsa Doom exudes his power. By taking his limp snake and making it hard like an arrow and shooting it into a woman is uh, extraordinarily on the nose for the uh, literary analysis crew. <laughs> I, uh, that reading into it, that I think absolutely is there. But also, I just have to say, in the world of fantasy, that is actually a really cool element that they that they bring totally. in here the fact that he can take this snake and and pull it into an arrow form and shoot it i was like okay that's really cool even with all how you can read into it i just thought that was pretty slick <laughs> how can you not read into it i'm not saying you can't i'm just saying <laughs> it's just cool it's just a really interesting yeah. fant fantasy element that they're incorporating in with all of its phallic symbology as a guy who like celebrates snakes to the extent that he does, right? And how hurt he was when his when Conan killed the giant snake, which I actually thought was really cool. There's a lot of terrible green screen in this movie, just of a time. And um, you know, there are some some cool use of the puppetry and mechanics and things like that to make that snake work. I thought I don't know how much fun. green screen there I mean there there might have been some, but a lot of it was actually uh traveling mats also. They were using a lot of mat shots throughout. Mostly I was looking at the sky replacement in the very beginning when mm. he's having the most important conversation that he'll ever have with his father before his father dies. It's so stupid. It's just <laughs> <laughs> really bad. And uh, so it's terrible green screen. Anytime there was a green screen, it's terrible. But you're right. A lot of traveling mats. I thought the snake was cool. There were some cool effects, like big, big effect 
sequences in in there in the good fight and he kills it and then Thulsa Doom is like willy-nilly taking his little snakes turning them into arrows and killing them I I assume I guess at the end when he pulls that when Conan pulls the snake out of Valeria it's is it still alive yeah it's still he yeah and he tosses it so I was like I assumed that it slithered off it didn't seem like it was necessarily dead but you do not want to be one of those snakes though I need to talk a little bit about this, though, because it, it is a it, it I don't think it's a confusing point, but I do think it's a frustrating point. The fact that here we have Thulsa Doom, this really, I think, effective cult villain, uh, villain. And I just will say one of the things that have been has been burned into my brain since I saw this as a young uh, a young teen is the scene where he has the people so hypnotized that he waves this woman forward who is up high on this, this, uh, you know, kind of this wall. They're all standing on these, um, kind of these ledges and she just, and he waves her forward and she jumps and kills herself. And that has been locked into my brain forever. And the power of cults and all of that, I was just like, that was incredibly effective. I loved all of that about Thulsa mm-hmm. Doom, but we have, he, he's got this giant snake and yes, it's a cool scene, they did what they could with it. I was like, if it if it had been modern, that would have been a lot more action as it is. It's just, there's not a lot of action in the snake fight, but it still is cool to see. But then we have Thulsa Doom turn into a snake and it's never, nothing happens with it. Yeah. I was like, that was such an interesting thing that we get to see him turn into this snake and like, I don't even know why he just turns into a snake and then slithers out of the room. And that's, kind of all it's like he does it before he even realizes i don't think he's doing it to escape because he's not moving as a snake he's not moving with any sort of intensity he just is like i'm done mic drop and he seems (laughs) like he's almost through the wall before anyone realizes that these people are attacking it's just all of it is so strange and then at the end he just he never does anything else with that i was like if you know turn into a snake and attack these people i like what they do i like him getting beheaded and conan throwing his head down and all that like it fits in in the cult story but the nature of him being this snake you know uh snake walker i guess we'll say it it ends up falling flat for me i find it really frustrating because i don't think we needed it like i think it's okay to make the cult leader uh you know that he somehow has a power over them and i'm going to call it charisma uh you know because that fits my mental model of this but you know turning him into a snake is taking it like is taking it a bridge too far, especially to your point where they never actually make any good out of it at all. Like they never give us an opportunity for a final battle that he's in this final evolved form. And that's who Conan has to face. And I think part of the challenge that they have there is that Conan already fought the big snake at this point, right? Mm. Like it, it would have been, um, you know, it, it would have been hard to have a second battle against the snake. My question is, why didn't they just cut that, that, you know, those few clips of him turning into a snake at all? We didn't need it. It doesn't add anything to the film. And it's more of a distraction for, for the power of his character as a human. Yeah, it's it's a it's a distraction, but for me it's more of a distraction because I think it's super cool. And I think that they did it because it is really great effects like i think the effects work actually for the time was was really cool i thought they did a great job with oh the i love the way his face kind of throbs yeah as kind it's of and stretches yeah. forward and mm-hmm. stuff like i thought all of that was really good and i'm sure that's why they didn't cut it because it was such a cool thing it's just if you're gonna do that 
build it into the story more. And, you know, yeah. honestly, I, yeah, I, I don't think the second one ever dealt with any snake people that would have given us more of that. It's been so long since I've seen Conan the Destroyer. I just don't have the memories of it that I did of this, of this particular film. Yeah. Yep. I, I don't know. Worst case scenario is that it's just sloppy editing and maybe it was intended as an escape and uh, it they just put it in the wrong place by yeah. a few cuts, right? Yeah, uh, right, right, right. Did you want to talk about you and the orgy and your son at any point? <laughs> yeah, well, since, since you bring it up like that now, I feel like I have to tell that story it's you know it's one of those things this is one of those films that i remember as a kid or not a kid i watched it when i was um, a young teen and so i my son walked in as i was watching it and i happened to be in the middle of the orgy scene and so i i paused it because i heard him coming and his question to me is like why are all those people naked and I just said, oh, they're not naked. It's just really hot. They're in the desert and they're just all in their swimsuits and they're just laying around because it's so hot. And, uh, you know, when it's paused, you know, maybe you can buy that. I just, you know, I didn't want to go into that conversation with him at that particular point about that particular scene. What can Son, I say? I need to talk to you about slave orgies. So, uh, first, my, get a cheetah or not a cheetah, daughter. a uh, jaguar. <laughs> they did bring a big cat to the orgy. Yes. Yes, that's got to be symbolic. Um, but I do I, I do think that the uh, my my daughter and my wife walked in over me during that scene, too. And um, they were like, oh, my God. And I said, yep, it's a slave orgy. And right then the the conquering hordes come in and we have my possibly my favorite character in the movie, which is guy wielding comically large hammer. <laughs> That apparently has no weight at all. And he's the, also the guy who gets hit by the Predator-style spring-loaded punji stick uh, yeah. in, later in the, in the chest. And it, that just led to riotous laughter from my family about the, the guy with the giant hammer who has to carry the giant hammer at the slave orgy. <laughs> it just doesn't get better than that. So uh, it, anyway, it, it was uh, that was a frustrating scene for those reasons. But at least um, at least you had a memorable moment with your son. Yes. Yes. Yeah. One to talk about uh, <laughs> at some point later, for sure. Going back to the cast real quick, we've kind of talked about the, the main performers in it. And uh, we've mentioned Mako popping up as the the wizard of the dunes or whatever his wizard of the hills i can't remember what his the location he's in but that you 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 brought up and i just think it's it's funny that we need to bring up again the uh the man wielding the giant hammer and so we have these two thugs that are essentially thulsa doom's uh right hand men rexor and thorgrim both of which I, I think have fantastic fantasy names. Um, Rexor totally. is played by Ben Davidson, and he is the uh, he is the one with the giant hammer. Uh, former football player, played for the Oakland Raiders, and um, I you know I don't know if he popped up in that many films, but I, I think that he's um, certainly of the type that uh, had a look. Um, you know, he I mean he was yeah, I should say he actually was in a number of of TV projects, but not a lot of film stuff. But then the other one, Thorgrim, is played by Sven Ole Thorsen. He's a Danish actor, stuntman, and bodybuilder, and a strongman. 
and he i i feel like he is somebody who must have been through his time as a bodybuilder somebody who hung out with schwarzenegger because he is in a lot of schwarzenegger films he has been in uh conan he was in the running man as the uh, the bodyguard sven he was in predator as a as a russian military advisor he was in um gladiator he was in mall rats I, you know i mean just tons and tons of stuff and oftentimes he's working just as a as a stuntman stuff oh red heat twins uh he was in those oh he's the russian chief in the hunt for red october total recall t2 judgment day he's the security guard at the galeria mall and it's just like i there has to be some connection uh between the two of them because he's ended up in so many of of um Schwarzenegger's films, um, uh, fifteen of them actually, as of two thousand six. So there you go. Yeah, he wow. and that makes him twelve as an actor, three as a stuntman or a trainer. That makes him Schwarzenegger's most frequent collaborator. No kidding. There you go. Yeah. Oh, and here you go. Uh, Schwarzenegger brought Thorson and other of his bodybuilder friends, like Franco Columbu, with him to shoot the movie. Later, when Thorson moved to the U.S., he met Schwarzenegger again while he was acting in the movie Commando. Thorson helped with some of the stunt work in that movie and quickly found work in many of the subsequent Schwarzenegger films. Gotta have buddies. You gotta have buddies. I'm I'm curious we didn't see Max von Sydow in 15 other Schwarzenegger films. Apparently, he took to Schwarzenegger and actually gave him, like, when they were working together, quite a bit of little bits of acting advice. I think that's awesome. I can I totally <laughs> see Side von Sydow doing that. Yeah, I think that's great. That that was great. I mean, there's all, every performance in here is just wonderfully over the top. I think I this again to my constant refrain that this movie was before its time. I think Duke Callahan did a, a, a fine job with the camera uh, as as best he could. I understand there was some uh, shakeup and behind the camera on this movie, and uh, I can't find the original dp do you know no i didn't hear about that so interesting yes and i i think that's worth at least thinking about just that there was there was some consternation around getting the uh getting the film shot the way it needed to be shot and i think um, i actually think it it given what they had to work with and the budget they had to work with and the locations they chose i think um um it was shot in spain right yeah they were originally going to film in yugoslavia but the country was kind of falling apart <laughs> the yeah. the uh, head of state had just died the country was collapsing and so they moved over to spain and filmed it all there I think they had uh, they had plenty to work with. It was barren, and uh, you know, I, I think it made for a, a fine setting. I think uh, generally the cinematography uh, worked for me. Um, you know, given the the tone and tenor of the film. Um, I do you have any complaints? No, in fact, I think a lot of that, uh, aside from the camera, comes from Ron Cobb, who's a, a, a designer I've always been just really fascinated with, kind of the the, yeah. the drawings he does, the work he does. I think he is incredibly compelling. I mean, you know, he worked on stuff like uh, Dark Star, Star Wars, Alien, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Back to the Future, The Abyss, Total Recall. I, I think that he's just uh, an incredible design talent, and seeing what he did here uh, to create this fake history, essentially, because he went back to a lot of those ancient 
drawings from the dark ages and basically made an all new version of everything. None of it is, you know, based on actual, you know, reality. He's kind of took elements from all of these things like the Vikings and um, Mm -hmm. things and just blended it all together to create a whole new uh, fantastical world here. And I thought he did a great job. How'd you feel about the costumes? Oh, I, yeah, I think they they fit in really well with the design, also. Except for, except for the pants. Okay, and I and I know any of the women's costumes are ridiculous. Even the men's. I, I well, and this it just goes back to my issue with this style of fantasy yeah. storytelling is like, why do people have to be wearing such skimpy outfits when they're fighting with swords and axes and things like that? Yeah. You should be wearing more armor, not running around in in bikini bottoms. Yeah, it takes forever to find the stupidest little shield. Yeah. Like nobody has shields. <laughs> just, yeah. They just throw right. stuff around at each other. Uh, but the uh, there's one sequence where there are some standout Schwarzenegger pants and they're like parachute pants. But instead of being like full balloon legs, they're straps. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought those are those have just gone in this movie too far because they are not only useless as protection, but also a detriment to any sort of fighting. They would catch on everything. They would catch on right. everything. Yeah. So I think I, I think there's just a lot going on in in costumes and 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 design that look cool, but practically they they just it just made me question around every corner. Like I can't fully get lost and invest in this world because so many things in here are silly. Yeah. It's it's so, the struggle, struggle with, with practicality when you're creating these worlds, and uh, there's a look at, but then there's the practicality. It's balancing. Okay. So the score. Basil Polidorus. I mean, it's fantastic. I, this is one of those scores that I feel has become somewhat iconic. I just, I, the, the French horns when they kick in, just the way that it's just got kind of this driving beat. And, and I, I just feel like there's a, a beautiful, fantastical element to it that works really well. I, I just love listening to this score. Always have. You know, I do too. And I had completely forgotten it. I had completely forgotten it. And this is one of those experiences where when as soon as these major themes come on, I find, oh, my goodness, I can hum that like I know where it's going. And uh, I I found it really, really lovely. I think Basil Polidorus did some um, fantastic work. And I feel like he actually pulled some I feel like he pulled some of that operatic element of all the chanting and everything. Like yeah. as I was listening to this, I was like, this has elements and I can see where he drew from to do the score for the Hunt for Red October with kind of the Russian chanting that yeah. we have throughout that score. Yeah, absolutely. Although in some it, it, there is one sequence where the music drop doesn't work, right? Where the cue doesn't work for me because they they sneak into the the red lit cave on the side of the mountain and then the chanting starts and it feels suddenly like I'm supposed to imagine all of the slaves in here are singing. And mm. it it does not work for me at all because it changes to like a well, changes to the Hobbit. <laughs> Suddenly, all well, the characters are singing, uh, so that didn't work for me. But, but in general, I really, really love uh, love the score. I think he did some great work. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This is not a good movie if you're a horse or a dog, even though they did give the dogs little hats. <laughs> 
Yeah, this was uh, the American Humane Society um, or American Humane Association. They put this film, this is on their unacceptable list of films in the treatment of animals. There, um, There's the dog that gets kicked, the camel that gets punched, and the horses that get uh, tripped for those uh, throws all of which were done without consideration for the animals. And uh, yeah, so, um, you know, it's one of those things that is a little frustrating. I, I, you know, I don't remember Conan the Destroyer, but apparently there is the, because of the outburst that people had at the time of, of the mistreatment of the camel, there is uh, Conan getting spit, by, spit on by the camel in that second film as a way to kind of, um, I guess... <laughs> close out that uh you know provide a payoff for the setup in did, this film i don't know did he actually punch the camel did you see yeah. him connect with the camel because i felt like i saw that i was like there's no way he connected with that camel just it, it looked fake no uh, my understanding is that he actually punches the camel man that's a shot yeah right there punching a camel yeah, low I, blow i don't know that i yeah low blow nobody punches a camel nobody in this town well, uh, I'll tell you, it, it was it was a good experience going back to it. it, it whatever the um, Oliver Stone themes that landed in the final version of the movie that we see on screen, I I did enjoy seeing these hints of of Stone to come. Uh, do you have Do you have any facts and tidbits that we need to review? You know, a couple. Uh, there was uh, so um, the swords that were made. Obviously, they were weren't making like real swords for people, and the ones that they did kind of create uh, were very well crafted. But it cost a lot of money. They made four of the Masters swords and four of the Atlantean swords. Each sword cost then ten thousand dollars per uh, per weapon. So wow. yeah, so that's just eighty thousand dollars just getting those uh, swords made for this. They did make copies of the sword now i think this is cool the atlantean sword they copied it i'm assuming a much cheaper <laughs> replica version of yeah. it and they made those to give to members of the production when they finished and i was just like oh how cool would that be to track one of these things down and just like have it on your wall you know one of the the atlantean swords that was a, a production gift yeah, very be, cool that's yeah. that's a, a great takeaway do you think yeah i'm sure arnold has his sword right who knows? I, I would I would think the way that the movies are, it's so hard to, you know, pin down who gets what and why. And, yeah. Here's an interesting, interesting thing, because I know we have to talk about the video game. Mm. And one of the things I know about the video game and all of the Conan video games and, in fact, many games just in general is that there's a lot of running where characters <laughs> yes. have to run across barren wastelands to get from here to there, hither and yon. Yeah. I think it all comes from this movie <laughs> because these guys run on foot everywhere. Did you notice that? They run everywhere. Oh, yeah. When Conan needs to be rescued in his big crucifixion scene, his buddy comes running across the desert to fix him. I, there's just a lot of running. This is something Peter Jackson must have pulled directly from Conan because when we see uh, a lot of their characters, they're just running through Middle so Earth. So much running. Yeah. Yeah. This is why I would have been a shopkeeper. <laughs> Some sort of merchant. No running. Right, right. So what do you think about the video? Do you ever play it? 
Well, okay. So speaking of the video game, because uh, there have been a number of them, but the one that I played a lot as a kid was Conan Hall of Volta, which actually came out for the Apple II, the Atari 800, and the Commodore 64. I only ever played it on the Apple II. I might have had the Commodore 64 version because I had a Commodore 64, but I may have been done playing this game by the time I had my Commodore 64. I can't remember. Yeah. I played this all the time, though. My, my friend introduced uh, me to Conan, the movie, and to this video game we played this game this little uh you know uh, kind of data soft game all the time i loved this game you had to run around you had these swords that you would throw like boomerangs and you had to get gems it, it kind of was almost like a pitfall you know as you're kind of yep. doing all these different things and load runner the first uh, load runner yeah exactly yeah i loved this game so much it was uh, a blast um and still, like, looking at images of it online, I'm like, oh, it brings back so many memories. Yeah. Then they came out with the, the. it wasn't really a leveler, right? You weren't, like, trying to clear a level. The next ones were, like, um, uh, Mortal Kombat style, like, uh, character Mis- against yeah. character, right? Bar- the, the barbarian fights kind of a thing. And and so you'd, you'd fight a character and you win. But I think all the way, I think the most recent one was that, that they made was... Um, is it the Exiles in 2019? Exiles was in 2017. And that was a PS4 game. I don't know if Conan Unconquered, that was the 2019 game. I don't know if that's yeah. uh, out or not yet. Uh, there's, there, I mean, it's just, people love their Conan games. I, I haven't played any other ones besides the first one. No, yeah, yeah me neither. Yeah, But I, I loved that one. There is a whole period in here. I actually, I've just stumbled on a uh, a wonderful video, Conan the Barbarian Game Evolution, which shows some playables uh, from each of the games between 84 and 2019. Oh, cool. And it turns out that they actually have the female characters clad even worse, if it's, if it's possible, <laughs> even worse than... <laughs> than in the movie. Oh, of course it's they do. really terrible. Of course they do. <laughs> they're, just, they're just naked. I mean, if we're just calling it, they're just naked characters running around with swords. It's yeah. not great. Right. right. Well, well, it did have the, the sequels that were made. Conan the Destroyer was made uh, a couple years later, uh, directed by uh, uh, Richard Fleischer. And, you know, I, you know, it was supposed to be something that would spur on the third in the trilogy, Conan the Conqueror. And of course, there was Red Sonja kind of thrown in there. Conan the Conqueror was supposed to be the third one released in 87 because Schwarzenegger was committed to making Predator. Then uh, uh, Dino De Laurentiis' contract had expired and uh, didn't want to renegotiate, and it fell into development hell. And eventually, I don't, I don't think I ever knew this, Conan the Conqueror eventually was revised and reworked into making what became a Kevin Sorbo vehicle in 1997, Cole the Conqueror. Yes. I had no idea that it had come from the Conan the Conqueror story. Wow. Yeah. It was it was a generic spin-off. Yeah, so weird. So that. weird. Then of course there was the remake in uh 2011 with um Jason Momoa playing Conan. That's the one I have seen that one and it was a presentation uh an interview with the actual screenwriter of that particular film talking about why it was such a mess. And it was actually more just about the writer and his career, but we actually got to one of the writers I should say uh um 
we got to um, watch the film and then sit down and have this conversation with the writer as to why it it uh, fell apart. And it was it was because really, like so many cooks in the kitchen, everybody wanted a different thing out of that movie. And he kept getting hit up by everyone at every turn. Hey, I need you to rework this so that this is happening. Hey, I need you to rework this so this is happening. And so by the time you see the end result, it's just like nonsensical things happening because everybody had different uh, um, reasons that they wanted to get the movie made. So, So it sounds like we should call ourselves lucky that there were only two on this one. But, you know, there still are talks, as I said, of of doing this Legend of Conan. Although now, I and I don't know if this is just because of the shift with TV and what you can do in TV, now there is talk that it may actually be a TV series instead of a film. I might watch that. That would be interesting. And I would be curious if it was Arnold Schwarzenegger coming back to uh, to be in in some capacity. Yeah, no, I would. Yeah, I would definitely check that out as a Game of Thrones fan i think that would that would i think i'd like i'd like today's take on that last little tidbit that i think is worth pointing out uh, you know we didn't really talk about the the original source material at all um for for conan uh but robert e howard who created conan there was a movie made about him and kind of this love story that is completely not Conan centric, but it was called The Whole Wide World, came out in 96, and it is Vincent D'Onofrio and uh, Renee Zellweger in that particular story, directed by Dan Ireland. But if you're if you're curious about the the person who is behind Conan, that film is um out there as well. How did it do at award season? This uh you know, fantasy, it fit in those sorts of awards. Interestingly, uh Sandal Bergman ended up getting more notice than a lot of her uh co-stars. She won at the Golden Globes for the new star of the year in a motion picture for a female. Over at the Saturn Awards, she also won Best Actress. The film was nominated for Best Fantasy Film, but lost to The Dark Crystal, Best Music, but lost to E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Best Costumes, but lost to Tron, and Best Makeup, but lost to Poltergeist. I have a hard time arguing any of those. Not a single one. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't say a single one. Yeah. And then at the Razzies, Arnold Schwarzenegger did get nominated for Worst Actor, but he lost to Laurence Olivier in the disastrous production of Inchon. <laughs> that's it. I can't tell if that's an auspicious loss uh, <laughs> for uh, uh, Schwarzenegger or win for Olivier. That's I, I feel like Schwarzenegger, all he had to do is just walk around saying, oh, yeah, I was up against uh, Olivier. Lawrence Olivier, yeah. yeah. You know, I lost yeah. to Olivier. What are you going to do? He doesn't right. have to say anything else. <laughs> How to do at the uh, box office? Make some money? Well, Milius' film cost $20 million to make, which is $53 million in today's dollars. Considering the god-awful remake in 2011 with Aquaman himself, uh, that one cost $90 million in 2011 dollars. I'd say Milius at least knew what he was doing. The movie was released May 14th, 1982, opposite The House Where Evil Dwells, The Return of the Soldier, and Wrong is Right. I've heard of none of those movies. Not a one. This film ended up hitting the number one spot, held it for two weeks, but was bumped in week three by Rocky Three, another film we've talked about on this show. By week six, it had fallen out of the top 10, but the film was still a success, earning $39.6 million domestically and $40.9 million internationally for a total adjusted gross of $213.1 million. That was a great success for the film, which landed it with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $1.2 million. A great success, but perhaps the one that benefited the most, 
was Arnold Schwarzenegger himself. Yeah. Uh, I mean, talk about a guy who was able to turn this into iconic performances all the way around uh, yeah. throughout yeah. his career. What, what an incredible thing. Definitely. Yeah. What do, you, what do you think? Should we take it to the mat? Nah. All right. So we'll skip flick chart this week. <laughs> Let's just skip it. All right. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flick chart, it should take you straight to Conan in the flick chart database where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, Conan the Barbarian or the Birdcage. The Birdcage. Hmm. They both have things I enjoy and they both have things I have problems with. I feel I'm going to say Conan. All right, man. What am I going to do? <laughs> You're going to fight me on it. Yeah. Well, yeah. I got to fight you on it. Okay. Here All we right. go. Here we go. One. One. Two. Two. Three. Three. Paper. Scissors. Oh. Okay. Right out of the gate. Right. Birdcage takes it. it. Conan right. the Barbarian or Stripes? Oh, Stripes. Conan. All right. <laughs> here we go. One. One two. two Three, Three. scissors. Oh, look at you. <laughs> Stripes takes it. Conan the Barbarian or Labor Day. I'll let Conan you the take Barbarian. the lead on this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're Conan? Yeah, I'm Conan. I'm also Conan. All right. Conan the Barbarian or Star Trek Insurrection? Star Trek Insurrection, please. I like the villains so much yeah, in you Insurrection. Do. So I much. Really do. You do. I'm going to say Insurrection. Yeah. Conan the Barbarian or Major League? Major League. I'll say Major League. Conan the Barbarian or Bull Durham? Bull Durham. (laughs) I was wondering where you were going to go on this one. I will say Bull Durham as well. Conan the Barbarian or Near Dark? Probably Near Dark. I'm going to say Conan. I'll give it to you. I don't even need to fight about it. Oh, all right. Conan the Barbarian or Lake Placid? Lake Placid. Yeah, I really enjoy Lake Placid. Conan the Barbarian or Giant? Conan the Barbarian. Conan the Barbarian. Well, that lands Conan the Barbarian pretty low on our chart. 425. No, sorry, 424 on our chart out of 490, which is a 13%. Very low. Very, very low. Uh, Works for me. Wow, really? Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, there, like I said, there are things in this movie that are uh, fun and interesting to think about and talk about. And still, I, I didn't overall like. It's not a movie I'm gonna be real excited to go back and watch again. I'm, I've now, I think, I've seen it uh, several times in my life, and I think I can close the chapter. Yeah, You're close done. the book. Interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm done with Conan. I just, I, I love the fantasy world that they create here. I actually have a lot of fun with this film. I have a lot of problems with this film, but this is like way too low for me. It landed in spot 1629 out of 4552, which is a 64% on my chart, which feels much better for me. It's a, a one, 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 uh, 11, 11 on my chart uh, out of 1485. And uh, that takes it to it. it, Apparently, it's a twenty-five percent according to the algorithm over at Letterbox.com/slash the next reel. If I had my way, this would be a one and a half star movie. Wow. Uh, I I will. I'm. I'll give it that, and I will also give it a heart. 
Oh, you're so giving. One and a half with a heart. Okay. Uh, for me, this is, uh, it's an easy three and three stars and a heart. Uh, I, I think that there's a lot of stuff going for it. It's, it's far from perfect, but, um, uh, you know, I still have fun watching it. I had a great time. I love this world. Uh, I just, I wish the film itself was stronger, but with what they have here, I think they do a great job. So three stars and a heart for me. So that gives us an average of, uh, two and, uh, three quarters, two and a quarter. Sorry. Yes. Okay. I think that this movie is probably the weirdest prelude to every other Oliver Stone movie that we would have to talk about. Am I right? Where do we go from here? I, you know, I, I, I don't think so. If anything, I think The Hand was a weirder one because it's, it's a kind of a, a peculiar... I mean, I think there's something Stone-ish with that one. Well, yeah, let's just say we're on the curve. But we're going from, from you know, this particular masculine figure to another very masculine figure. We're going to be jumping to Brian De Palma's Scarface. Yes, we are. And actually, now that I say all that, I think this may be the perfect prelude for Scarface. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, this is, uh, of course, Al Pacino in a very iconic performance as a Cuban immigrant, Tony Montana, as he is uh, kind of becoming a the drug lord down in Miami in 1980. I have an old friend who knows a lot of quotes and doesn't know a lot about movies, and and just about every movie that has any sort of accent to it, he thinks, comes from Scarface. So, badges, <laughs> we don't need no stinking badges. That's <laughs> Scarface. <laughs> Are you talking to me? Scarface, totally Scarface. Wow, interesting. <laughs> Everything comes from Scarface. Weirdly, he doesn't think, say hello to my little friend, comes from Scarface no. at all, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's from the Muppet movie. Um, uh, this is great. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andy. As Letterboxd always doeth. I wasn't going to start with the low ones, but the low ones were too funny. <laughs> yeah. So right. You I are, got you are already in. low. You're supposed to go I know. high. You I was supposed to go high, cheater. but I didn't. I didn't. All right. What All did right. you do then? Uh, well, I, this one is actually not funny, uh, but it totally, I think, uh, it encapsulates the experience that maybe I didn't have personally, but can completely imagine because I didn't see this movie as a kid. It's from Grudlian, who gives it a half star and says, it's amazing to me that I thought this movie was A-W-E-S-O-M-E, awesome as a kid, and literally could not get through it as an adult. Even breaking it up over the course of a couple of days was too much for this movie. (laughs) Jeez. Ouch. I think I, I could see that experience happening to me I can I just really personalize it. What'd you, what'd you, where'd you end up? Well, I have a half star by the snake emoji who had this to say about the film. I counted at least a dozen Conans and one barbarian, but no one ever called him by his legal Christian name of Conan the barbarian. Damn shame. He is risen. 
Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world... Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.